All right, we are live. Nice. Welcome, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Today we have Brendan Coulsat with us. He's an associate professor at the European School of Political and Social Sciences (ESPOL) in France. Uh, also a member of the Global Environmental Justice Group at the University of East Anglia. He has written uh, Words and Routers, Le Monde, Politico, Le Soir, and others. Um, Brendan, I think, self-describes an environmental social scientist who works at the intersection of environmental justice, uh, environmental humanities, and critical food studies. Uh, he has also authored a very a key um, textbook called Environmental Justice, uh, the first of its kind to offer a comprehensive and accessible overview of the field of environmental justice. Brendan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank How are you doing? You. Hi guys, thanks for having me. How are you doing? Very good, very good. It's um, well for for those of us watching, this is our our fourth or fifth stream, so we're we're getting right. in the hang of things now. Um, we were just saying to Brendan that we know for now the stream looks a little bit uh, ugly with just the zoom, but uh, we're gonna it's rustic. It's fine. It's rustic, yeah. <laughs> we're we're gonna work a little bit on the on the aesthetic. Because as they say, optics is everything. (laughs) (laughs) So um, yeah, Brendan, you've you've. uh, I I just want to like before we we talk about you know the more academic things and and the kind of deeper, um, more complex topics and stuff. Maybe we can start with uh, something that you did a bit more recently, which is that you went on quite the road trip. (laughs) You um, that's right. Took a, a few months off. Um, I think six, you said, or eight, something like That's that. That's right. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and yeah, so how was uh, Italy? And what exactly were you researching or looking at when not sampling the all superior Italian food, as I have to say, because my girlfriend will kill me if I don't? <laughs> <laughs> I, I did a lot of dance, to be honest. Um, also, because part of the trip was 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 just, you know, getting to know Italy, not that we didn't know Italy because my partner is also from Italy. Well, her family, she's Belgian, Italian, but most of her family is in Italy, um, which is which is obviously nice, but also sort of creates this attraction to one part of Italy when you go there because you have to sort of visit the family, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we didn't really know the rest of Italy then much so 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 the idea was to basically travel around outside of the cities we didn't want to go to the big cities most of which we had seen we wanted to see a bit of rural italy in a way um and we wanted to take the kid who is now uh three years old and was going to start school soon and so there was there was a bit the right moment uh to take a bit of a sabbatical leave, parental leave. Um, and also it's it's something that is possible in 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 France and in Belgium where we mm-hmm. both work. I mean it's it's made accessible, it's financially supported. Um, so that's you know that's very that's very helpful. And um, yeah, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing field work per se, but obviously uh, some of the things I've seen and some of the places I went to were, uh, were were close to some of the things I've worked on, obviously as um, as a scholar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I just want to see if it's possible for me to uh, add 
an image on here um because i <laughs> i saved the image of your of your trip that you you took and it's uh it's impressive like you you went through a lot of places let me see if i ah this is very hard to do okay i'll just do a screen yeah, capture it, it, it looks impressive but i mean we were very we weren't you know jumping around from one place to the other it was actually yeah. pretty slow traveling uh yeah we had a small van in which we traveled and and then we stayed on farms here and there when we had the opportunity mm-hmm. um, but yeah i have the picture yeah. on on the screen right now yeah it's a, it looks like it must have been absolutely amazing trip i mean like from all the way from milan to san marino passing by bologna i mean syracuse marsala like you guys seem to have gone kind of done the whole boot and back really yeah pretty much pretty much yeah (laughs) um so in in one of the threads that you posted you talked about the uh i mean i i know that you didn't like you said you didn't do it specifically for research like you weren't send there or anything but you did kind of take your time uh there to study some to study up on some of the stuff that's happening around the uh, farms and countryside in Italy. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you found, what you discovered? Yeah. Um, I mean, what part of the trip was, was really about working in farms and, and, you know, we're always talking about this Italian food and, and, and how good it is and whatnot, but we had very little knowledge of, you know, the, the sort of production side of, of, of Italian food, you know, um, and um, my partner's family comes from, from Puglia and Puglia is very well known for, uh, for the olive uh, production, right? The mm. olive oil, uh, it has, I think it has more olive trees than it has inhabitants, uh, just, you know, to, 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 to give you an idea of the magnitude of the thing. Um, <laughs> And the olive uh, harvest happens in November. And November is, is, is kind of the worst time of the year to take holidays, right? It's, it's, it, with school, it's impossible. Where, uh, when you work at the university like I do, you know, it's, 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 you can't just, you know, leave your students. Uh, so we never had <laughs> the chance to sort of go and do the olive harvest. Uh, so that was one of the things that we uh, wanted to do. Um, and then, you know, we, we did a whole lot of other things, uh, uh, a whole lot of different uh, uh, cultures, of course, a whole lot of, I mean, in the North, we did a lot of uh, um, market gardening in, in the mountains. In, uh, we, in September, we went to do the, the grape harvest in, uh, in Tuscany, which is also one of these classics, right? Uh, a lot of people do this on and during their their holidays you know um especially american tourists it's very famous for <laughs> american <laughs> really? tourists to do this um and so this the, the network we used is uh, you guys may know this is the woofing network right mm-hmm. uh yeah. thing that that originated in the us i think um and that is you know it's a particular type of farming right it's it's small farms it's organic farms it's it's um and by its very nature, you know, these farms are a bit outside of the, the sort of mainstream uh, production context, you could, uh, you could say, uh, of, of food. Um, 
and that is one of the things that 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 struck me very quickly is that you had, despite the, the sort of diversity of farms and and the different realities and 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 the different objectives, you know, some people were doing that as a living, where other people were doing that more, you know, as a side gig. Um, but you had to sort of share the objectives um, that were environmental and 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 farm related you know people try to to farm um with nature instead of against nature to to put it uh, uh if, if we can put it like that but also very sort of political objectives and trying to you know um question the sort of hegemonic farming institutions that you have all over mm -hmm. Europe and, you know, that characterize this sort of post-war farming context in Europe that is, you know, geared towards production, overproduction, yeah. and less towards, you know, well-being of farmers and, you know, conserving the environment and whatnot. And that that's very, that's very strong with these types of farms. Um, yeah, I've, you know, I have plenty of stories around that, but yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and and this context, even though um, like Italy, I think is like in mid to high tables for a uh, level of organic uh, growth of, of vegetables and such, right? So do, did you feel like they were, there was this, uh, this clash of the kind of uh, productivist mindset um, within the age categories as well or is it something that kind of transcends age the struggle between like being productive versus um having good produce not not age not not related to age i'd say i mean i've i've, I've seen mm -hmm. i mean you have very sort of young farmers new farmers in a way that you know left the cities and 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 started something new whereas you had you know the sort of old uh, back to the lands movement, uh, people that, you know, started somewhere in the 60s and 70s and, and, and had some of the same objective that, uh, that you see today with, with people leaving the cities. Um, that didn't struck me really, but what, what, did, what, what did strike me was this was a bit of a paradox is that it's really hard to find organic produce in Italy um, mm -hmm. in markets, in supermarkets, um, despite the fact that you have this obsession of Italians with their food, um, mm -hmm. and despite the fact that apparently, and I didn't know that before leaving, but uh, Italy is the largest uh, um, uh, network of uh, farmers markets in the world. So despite these okay. two elements, you, you have, you have, we have difficulty in finding organic milk for example for the kid you know uh we're not obsessed with you know eating organic you know if we don't find it we don't find it but for the kid you know we're trying to you know give her the best produce we can find especially when you drink you know uh uh a lot of milk during the day you want to you want to make sure it's not full of pesticides right yeah. um, and yet we had a hard time finding organic milk even in the sort of big supermarket brands um, and the reason i we found out later on is that most of the organic produce in italy is actually exported and when you think of it um, go to the supermarket in mm. belgium or in france and a lot of that comes from italy yeah and that's so why exported you know, to fine. Europe. Yeah, exported in Europe. 
um, in Northern Europe, especially. Um, and, and so you have this sort of paradox where you have all these talk about food and all this talk about local food because local food is very important for Italians. You have this, um, you have this concept of kilometro uh, cero, so the very local food uh, market. But at the same time, the organic element is is fairly absent from that. So that was a bit of a paradox for us. That was a bit of a shock, to be honest. Yeah, and I, I guess a lot of the people that you met also were uh, struggling with the firsthand effects of climate change of um so i remember in your thread you were talking about how um the ah what am i forgetting the english word uh record the <laughs> the ah what do you call it like the crop yields were were much lower and the temperatures had yes harvest thank you the uh, crop yields were lower that the harvests had come uh later uh, i mean i guess what i'm trying to lead to is that um, you must have seen firsthand the uh, the real world examples of this environmental justice uh, topics that you study and that you, you write about in uh, these little Italian farms that were finding themselves um, having to deal with the same system, but with changing, um, changing factors of weather and, and and what their farms were yielding, etc. Did you see a little bit, like, I guess I wonder how it must have felt as a researcher to see what you study in practice in front of your eyes. Yeah, I mean, that was very present. But I mean, I've, I've seen it in other places too, but you could, mm-hmm. you could say in a way that um, these, these sort of alternative farming communities are a bit uh, part of the frontline community in, in, in our countries, right? Um, and in the sense, yeah, they, they, they do face an injustice in the sense that they're the ones probably doing the most effort in trying to steer agriculture away from, you know, from its bad habits and from what's not working and from, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of impact on the environment it's more most extreme impact on the environment and at the same time there are also the communities that probably struggle the most within the farming community to adapt to um you know the effects of climate change mm-hmm. they're not of massive amounts of financial means um and so they're probably struggling to you know uh, uh, adapt their whole system to how unpredictable the weather is is, is becoming, right? Because that's their mm-hmm. main uh, their main challenge is basically dealing with the fact that everything becomes pretty unpredictable. Um, that and and the fact that the seasons are are completely changing, right? The, the har- I think we're slightly losing Brendan. we'll just have to wait just a few seconds um first it was jamie it was brendan everybody's having internet problems yeah you'll have it next oh no please uh oh there you go he's back yeah hey i'm back jamie was saying he's passed the curse on to you yeah (laughs) (laughs) sorry about that no 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 it's all right um 
sorry, we didn't really hear the last uh, 10 seconds ish. Um, I don't know if you want to, to, yeah, um, so, so I was, I was picking up on your, uh, uh, your question on whether they're facing environmental injustices and, mm -hmm. and, and in a way you could say that in the sense that they're doing most of the efforts and trying to steer agriculture away from its environmental impact while at the same time, uh, you know, having less means, uh, to, to adapt to the consequences of climate change. Um, so, so you could, you could say that, but I mean, it's, it's been pretty rough for them this year, especially in Southern Italy. Uh, I mean, Sicily broke uh, a heat record, uh, a European heat record with uh, 48 degrees mm -hmm. Celsius, something like that. Um, I mean, that and the combination with late frosts in April and, um, and lack of rain in some places and too much rain in other places. The vineyard we worked with in, in, in Tuscany, uh, when we were there in September, hadn't seen rain since the month of, of May or something. They hadn't had rain in like four months. Wow. Uh, okay. So imagine the kind of impact that it has on your on on your on your grapes, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been yeah, it's been pretty. I mean, for them, it's been pretty tough, a pretty mm -hmm. tough year. Uh, most of them actually lost a lot of harvest. Uh, again, the vineyard, you know, said they had about half of their production this year of what they normally have, uh, due yeah. to due to the changing weather patterns. Yeah. Do you think it's this? It is this first-hand experience of the effects of climate change that has sort of um, made these farmers want to actually do something about it. To, to, as you said, steer their sort of practices in a more environmentally friendly direction, or is it? Or did they become more aware in sort of a more indirect manner, or both? I think it's two things. It's it's the environmental aspect, definitely, but. In my view, and uh, in my view, it's 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 a political dimension as well that is very strong. Um, their, uh, you know, their actions that could be um, framed as environmental actions or farming actions um, carry this political frame uh, that is, I think, one of the main drivers of what they do. Um, it's not just about adapting to climate change. It's not just about, uh, you know, finding the best farming practices. It's also about reconnecting to the land. Um, it's about, uh, through farming, finding a way to have a voice in local policy making around land use for example mm -hmm. it's about uh shifting your income from something that is unsustainable in both you know the financial and and the environmental sense of the word to something that is much more stable um and it's about it's definitely about building community uh even though that doesn't always you know, work out like they would be, and it's and it's probably this, the hardest part of their job. Uh, but it's definitely about finding, uh, yeah, building community uh, uh, around around farming mm -hmm. and around food. Yeah. Do, do the um, is it sort of a, a successful project? Like actually getting together as a as a as a group in order to 
put pressure on this or do they kind of face internal struggles with that sort of organizational challenge? Oh, they're facing loads of struggles related to, I mean, you know, egos and um, organizing collectively. Also, Italy has this peculiar history of uh, farming unions uh, that were very, very big in Italy. Um, and over the time sort of turned into these sort of big agro corporations that are mostly about, you know, making money uh, with farming and not about, you know, the initial ideas of, you know, collective ownership and whatnot. Um, That's the same institution sort of that's developed into that. Yeah. Um, and so this, this, this collective history sort of, you know, I think has left marks within the farming communities and 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 sort of their their wary of of these you know this history repeating in some way at least that's what i've heard from from a couple of people that they were saying you know mm-hmm. um look at the union you don't want to we don't want to end up like they ended up you know it's all about money yeah. uh there's no farming there anymore um so that history is 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 is, is very alive still uh, in italy and I guess a lot of the money that comes in are is subsidy money um, in terms of like EU subsidies, uh, right? Because I remember when Brexit was happening, one of the main arguments against Brexit from farmers was that they receive a shit ton of money from the EU to to keep um, land for pasturing and, and things like that, environmental subsidies. Um, so I guess there's a lot of money in, in that sense as well, not just in the actual farming, like selling the produce. Um, I, I, this uh, Italy trip is uh, honestly like super interesting. I, I really love that you did it, but I also I know that we don't have forever on time, and I do really want to talk to you about your main work, which is uh, on it. this on this very. Uh, we can come back to the Italy stuff in, in a bit as well, <laughs> but I would just be remiss if I if I uh, didn't mention this very interesting term, which is environmental justice. Um, so I thought maybe we could start with what actually environmental justice is, because many people say it has become empty of meaning from being overused, often in uh, completely incorrectly, but in some ways. I think we can see all over the world that this word, envi- uh, these words, environmental justice, uh, hold a lot of potential and power as a rallying term across the world. You know, people are in the streets from Brussels to Rio to, you know, shouting about environmental justice. Um, and sure, maybe maybe a lot of them don't wouldn't be able to define what that term would really mean for them, or maybe they would have completely different definitions. But um, but this is something that you personally study and that you write about. So maybe we should uh, get the stuff from uh, what do you say from the horse's mouth? No, <laughs> wow. is that is that what you say? No, what's no, no, it is. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, wait, is that is that an insult? Am I accidentally <laughs> insulting our guest? <laughs> No, just maybe we should get it from uh, from an expert. What actually is environmental justice? Um, so there's, there's different ways of defining it, obviously. Um, I think the, the most sort of straightforward way would be to say that environmental justice um, is about the, the unequal distribution of environmental costs and benefits. Um, and 
the study of that, so let's call it environmental justice studies or analysis, uh, tries to understand both how this distribution sort of takes place, but also the sort of underlying drivers of that uh, of that distribution, right? Um, and I'm saying that's the more, more straightforward way because there's been a lot of work to sort of um, depart a bit from, from, from an approach that is a bit too distributive, a bit too about, you know, uh, distributing cost and benefit. A lot of others are going to say, well, it's not just about distribution. It's yeah. about mm -hmm. a whole lot of other things, um, including, you know, uh, cultural aspects, racial aspects, um, the economy, uh, matters of, of, of cultural recognition, uh, matters of participation, uh, who sits at the table and who decides about how things are being distributed, um, that sort of things, right? Uh, but of course, that definition wouldn't be complete if we didn't talk about the movement, right? Um, what I do is environmental justice studies, right? But mm. environmental justice originally sort of comes from a, a, a very interesting movement in the US originally um, in the 70s and 80s uh, that within the civil rights movement is, is, is sort of starting to... Um, look at how uh, um, the, the toxic pollution is uh, spatially distributed and how this toxic pollution happens to um, disproportionately uh, sit within African-American communities or more generally within um, racial, racial minorities in which the African-American community is going to be very represented. So basically, um, landfills happen to be more located within African-American neighborhoods than they are within white neighborhoods, to put it, mm -hmm. to put it very simply. Right, and this is true not just for landfills. This is true for all sorts of toxic facilities, um, you know, waste treatment, um, other sort of industrial sites, um, and then and it also sort of, as as a sort of mirror in a way, um, can be traced within you know health related environmental inequalities. You're going to see that you know a lot of health related inequalities are concentrated within what is called the sort of black belt in, in, in the Southern US, right? And you're going to have an overlap, a very strong overlap between the presence of African-American communities and a whole sort of um, environmental impacts, a whole sort of health-related impacts and whatnot. Um, so that's, that's the very origin of, of environmental justice. And actually at mm -hmm. the beginning, they, they, they rather talked about um, environmental racism right? The, the, the race element was very, uh, very present. And then they sort of broadened that up to, to environmental justice. Once, mm -hmm. you know, additional evidence came in, um, showing that obviously race is, is a very important um, element of it. Um, you're in the US, a very sort of peculiar racial history. Um, but um, low-income communities are also going to uh, face this sort of mm -hmm. Um, unequal distribution of, of, of yeah. environmental burdens. And so it's going to be a combination of things. You could, in a way, you could say that the environmental justice movement is a sort of 
uh, intersectional movement avant la lettre in a way, right? Uh, before this thing was intersectionality was was even a thing, you had you had the environmental justice movement that was basically combining a, a whole set of different movements um, around this issue of environmental inequalities. Yeah, and um, and like you said, the, it, the U.S. context is uh, quite unique. Um, so for it to originate there, it kind of makes sense that um, as it broadened and as it traveled, it also changed um, into like something slightly different in Europe, for example, or around the global south and and, and other places. Um, one of the uh, things that you speak about that I find quite interesting is this idea of decolonizing uh, environmental justice or decolonial environmental justice. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so as you, as you, as you said, the, 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 the environmental justice framework has traveled a lot since, since then, right? I mean, these, the first sort of generation environmental justice study was really about documenting the sort of spatial inequalities, right? And then second generation environmental justice studies have, have, have sort of um, departed from the original political and geographic boundaries um, of environmental justice to, to you know, um, apply it in, in different places to different people in different contexts and, and, and whatnot. Um, and there's been, there's been quite some, some work on that. Um, what we noted is that um, there was indeed a sort of conceptual transfer um, and, and, and an empirical transfer of this, of this concept to other places in the world. But Mostly, it stayed, um, at least conceptually, a sort of uh, North American thing, right? Or at least a Western thing, um, because part of the concepts are now developing uh, uh, in, in, in Europe. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the sort of empirical application of these studies were increasingly done within the global South. And so you had a potential tension there between the the place where the concepts originate, originate and and the place where they're applied, which we argued was um, you know at risk of creating new forms of injustices, um, forms of, of of knowledge related injustices, epistemic injustices, if I can call it like that. Um, and so we we in, in in a paper we published a few years ago with with a colleague, uh, we we looked at um, what the effects were of that transfer. So what happens when you take a concept originating within that peculiar context of West mm -hmm. and start applying it somewhere else? What kind of effects do you have, political and conceptual effects do you have in, in, in doing that? Mm -hmm. One of the things, for example, is that um, we showed that this, this focus on distribution that I mentioned earlier, um, was going to generate um, a set of a set of different problems, and and you know this has been this has been the focus. Like I said, it's been the focus of of quite some research within the environmental justice literature. Um, but we argued that you know the decolonial approach um, was going to shine a new light on that, in the sense that 
it was going to uh, um, get us into the, 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 a discussion on, on different worldviews on the environment. Um, if you, and I'm going to simplify this to the bone, but I mean, people that are interested can always email me for, for the article. But um, if you apply that, uh, if you apply a, a sort of distributive approach in which you're basically arguing that you can offset environmental inequalities by distributing it in a more uh, equal or in a fairer way, uh, you're going to uh, you're going to have a problem when um, you have um, cases in which a plural a pluralist approach is not really possible. What I mean by that is that um, you're going to have places where the very idea of distribution is incompatible with the right. local worldview. For example, a very uh, vocal and very explicit example is uh, the, um, the, um, the movement in Standing Rock a few mm -hmm. years back. Um, so you had a youth-led movement in Standing Rock that you know, uh, occupied uh, a land where um, a, a pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline, was supposed to be, uh, um, yep. was supposed to be uh, organized. Um, and um, you know, the problem in, in, in Standing Rock wasn't about distributing smaller pipelines equally or fairly distributing pipelines across the country, right? It was about not having pipelines at all because the pipeline was, um, you know, uh, uh, a risk to the kinship that the community was sharing with the land, right? Yeah. Um, to, you know, uh, uh, it was a risk to uh, the rights of um, that the community, uh, 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 the right to water, not for the community, but for the water itself, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so in this, this is a very good example of how you can't just, you know, distribute the environmental impact of that pipeline, because that would have implied that you can sort of objectify water, uh, chop it into small pieces, and then basically distribute it over those communities that, you know, are considered to, yeah. to have a right to that water, which doesn't work in this case, right? And, and these, is, these are the sort of issues you get into when you're applying um, this environmental justice framework um, in different uh, in different contexts. Now, we're not saying that we shouldn't be doing that, right? Um, I think the, the environmental justice framework is very powerful to to, to sort of um, help us analyze these sort of problems uh, in different contexts. But we have to sort of be aware. We ourselves, as scholars, have to be aware of the effects of of, of uh, using a concept in a different in a different context uh, when we do so. Yeah, and yeah, go, going beyond just a, a purely distributive paradigm, I, I think is is the right way. And I suppose, as you said, just sometimes it can result in imposing a single group's like method of valuing what's at stake upon the the the, the others. Um, when when I looked at your sort of research overview, I was really interested to find that you're drawing upon Nancy Freya's work. Um, and as we've been talking, I've been kind of understanding more and more like how that all fits in. Um, I'm, I'm familiar with her based on her concept of subaltern counterpublics. 
and I'm I'm really curious to sort of see how exactly you know um, discursive power I suppose plays into the um, context you're researching. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't, I haven't really developed the, the, the counter-public part of her work. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, part of Fraser's work starts off with, with, with a critique of, of, of uh, sort of, of Habermas, right? Of um, a context in which um, you, would have, you would sort of have an ideal um, discussion forum um, in which you could... Um, you could solve a whole set of issues um, uh, as long as these sort of uh, conditions of communications are met, right? And, and first is going to say, well, okay, that's very nice, but um, you have a whole set of uh, institutionalized conditions um, that are going to prevent this. And Fraser, of course, you know, thinks of, of, of women in, in, in this case, where she's going to say society is full of these institutionalized rules around uh, uh, the situation of women that keep them from participating in these ideal conditions, right? Um, the, the, one of the examples she uses a lot is this idea of, you know, the housewife, right? It's still expected within our societies that, you know, uh, women take care of the household, the kids and whatnot, which materially makes it impossible for them to have the same conditions of participation um, within society than men, right? Um, what I tried to do is apply this idea specifically um, within um, a farming context. And there we're maybe we're making the link again with, with, with the Italian experience, but that was way before the Italian experience. Um, and I tried to see how these, in, these types of institutions that prevent people from participating within society are also found in different types, of course, but also find, found within, within a farming context, right? And in that context, well, it's very easy to see how... Um, you know, alternative farming networks are going to suffer from certain institutionalized uh, rules um, that prevent them from actually playing a role within society or, or a big enough role within society to sort of change things for the better, right? Um, and so um, I try to apply her idea of recognition within that, um, within that context. Um, and I try to do so as well as she does uh, on pair with, with the idea of distribution, because the idea is not to say, well, distribution is incomplete, so we ditch it, right? Mm -hmm. It's to say, well, it still plays a role. And, and I mean, especially in farming, um, you know, Skander mentioned it, where does the common money come from, right? I mean, making a living, having, you know, uh, you know, having financial means, not just to you know, participate in, in, in Fraser's sense, but also just to survive, basically, is obviously part of the story. Um, so this issue of distribution is, is, is still very important. And Fraser says that it's, you know, it's both these issues at the same time that we have to look at, right? And it's not one of the other, uh, like other people would say, like, you know, in our discussions with Axel Honneth, where uh, he's 
going to say that you know recognition, for example, is this sort of moral grammar of of of, of social struggle, um, whereas she's going to say, well, no, it's 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 a bit of both, right? And so I like that sort of balance between these two realities that that was that was so obvious for me in the context in this farming context in which I was working. Hmm. Yeah, and one of the words that you just uh, mentioned. Um, I, we can find in one of the articles that you wrote back in 2016 called uh, Justice and Conservation that Need to Incorporate Recognition, um, which argues a point that's increasingly present in academia, which is the um, it, of, just, of justice in conservation in general. But through the lens of this really specific word that you just used, recognition, um, Maybe for those of us who are unfamiliar with like how that word recognition fits into this context, can you tell us a little bit about um, how the two interact? Yeah, so recognition uh, in, in, in simple terms is about, you know, recognizing the, the right to be different, basically. Um, it's about how we deal with difference within society and how that difference, uh, whether it's chosen or not, is going to impact the way in which we interact. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying, but that's basically mm -hmm. what it comes down to, right? And so the idea of including recognition is going to look at how um, people relate in different ways to the environment and how that is going to impact the way in which we try and conserve, right? When you think of it, um, the very idea of, of, of what is worth protecting of the environment in the first place is culturally driven, right? Mm -hmm. um, the history of environmental conservation around, you know, big uh, wilderness areas in the US, for example, was very related to one particular experience of the environment, one way of relating to the environment, and this mm -hmm. is what the environmental justice movement is going to criticize, actually, that, you know, it's a sort of very sort of wide male middle class type mm -hmm. of uh, experience. We have to conquer the, the, uh, the environment. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so looking at recognition sort of helps us, you know, break that open, right? Mm -hmm. It helps us go beyond the sort of distributive, <coughs> sorry, distributive approach that we were um, talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, I, I love that you brought up the, uh, the kind of different uh, realities of that. That's something that we, I've been reading a bit in, well, in part because I've had to with my course, but also because I am genuinely interested in it as well. Just this, um, like you said, the, the patriarchal kind of uh, American like frontier mindset of the wild nature as like this um this like beast almost to be tamed to be like gone into and conquered and and there is i mean even honestly a um kind of like a, a sexual element to it as well i i think personally of like this this uh, nature as a thing like almost it's you can find it almost to be uh feminized by by men in like literature and stuff as this thing to be conquered almost like a they think a, a woman should be conquered um, and it's true that like when you when you read about that kind of mindset and and also the mindset of like pristine nature and stuff to be protected and such um 
kind of like uh, it's present in a lot of, you know, other writings about women as being pristine creatures whose virginity must be protected, et cetera, et cetera. Like these kind of views, um, I think it's, it's really easy then to understand how these views would come completely in shock with um, other views from, for example, indigenous groups or just from honestly in a lot of other places in the world and how that, um, that kind of, like that hierarchy where we've put the former as uh, the mainstream way of seeing nature is, is could be very dangerous for, for the, for the others. Um, in terms of, uh, of another article that you also uh, helped write, which was about the role of indigenous people and local communities in uh, equitable conservation. Um, I was wondering, cause the article makes quite a strong claim, and I think uh, you have about it as well, saying that it gives kind of proof that uh, the conservation is best done by people living in the actual space. Could you maybe tell us a bit about this concept and, and what the paper's proof is? Yeah, there, I mean, like you said, a lot of my initial work was in applying sort of an environmental justice approach to, the, to, to conservation, to biodiversity conservation, either locally or more sort of conceptually around, you know, what conservation means and, and, and how it's sort of evolved over time. Um, and one of the, 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 the recent papers that you just mentioned in, in Ecology and Society actually came out of a, a project that I'm, um, that I'm uh, running, um, it's called Just Conservation. Um, and um, the idea of that project is to understand how issues of justice and equity are sort of um, translated within uh, conservation practice, basically. How do, you know, practitioners uh, basically transform these concepts, maybe without calling it that, right? They're not necessarily talking about environmental justice, but there's issues of rights, there's issues of recognition, there's issues of uh, local knowledge being used or not. And that's, you know, all of that can sort of be analyzed through a sort of environmental justice lens. Um, and so this first paper that came out of that project is the one you're mentioning. Um, and the argument we make is uh, based on, 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 exist on existing work, this is not, we didn't go in the field, it's not empirical work. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't go and do field work. It's actually uh, uh, a- um, Like a meta study? A, yeah, a review project, actually. Okay. We're not collecting new data. We're, ex we're using existing data uh, that is out there. So this paper is based on, I don't know how much it was, but initially it was a couple thousand papers that we worked down to I, don't, I, I think it was 150, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, basically looking at the impact on co of conservation, of community-led conservation on uh, both the environment. Obviously, you want your conservation projects to have a positive impact on the environment, um, mm -hmm. but also on well-being. And the point was in having these sort of this, this, this dual look, right? Both these elements. And when you look at both these elements and you compare it, you sort of cross-analyze it with who is actually driving the projects, um, you notice that um, when local communities are in charge, 
um, or are actively participating within uh, the conservation project, then the likelihood, the likeliness of, of, of uh, achieving a more positive outcome is much higher than when you have external actors pushing it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that everything is positive or that everything is negative with external actors, yeah. uh, but it has a tendency of being much more positive on both these elements combined than when you have uh, external players uh, uh, come into the, the, the picture. Um, and so this, this is quite... Um, I mean, it, it, it confirms a lot of existing research. It's not revolutionary in that sense. There was a lot of arguments in the literature on this. Um, but what it does, it, it, it confirms these arguments. And what we added to it is we try to understand why that was. So the second part of the paper is sort of tracing the different pathways, the governance pathways, we call them, mm-hmm. in which... Um, local people, local communities, indigenous people are being included or excluded from the process. Mm -hmm. Well, typically one of these pathways is market-based instruments, right? Market-based instruments have this tendency of using um, forms of of, uh, uh, governance that are based on the idea of compensation. We're talking about distribution. Well, this is a very good example of a distributive uh, uh, tool, right? A distributive approach. Um, So they're trying to balance, they're trying to deal with the trade-off between environmental well-being by throwing money at it, basically, right? We're going to compensate the community um, for, I don't know, um, the fact that they can't access the forest anymore because we're trying to protect the forest. And so they can't access right. the resources anymore. And instead, we're going to give them money. They have iPads. They have their, their <laughs> meta uh, you know, well, headsets. They can go into the metaverse. To, you don't even have to take it that far. But you know, um, in theory, it, 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 it's not that bad of an idea, right? Okay, you're going to compensate them for something that they have lost. And what we show is that it, it doesn't work. Right, it's mm-hmm. it's 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 this idea that hasn't worked. It's a failed promise of, of what they call benefit sharing within uh, within a conservation practice, uh, in which the benefit is shared between you know those who conserve the environment or the forest and the local community. But also, this 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 it's not just the effect of these compensation mechanisms. It's also the very ideal that that. Um, on which they're based it's the idea that to conserve the forest to continue with that example um, Mm -hmm. you have to exclude it from the local community you have to exclude the local community from accessing the forest right yeah and a lot of uh, uh, mainstream conservation is still driven by that sort of idea where you necessarily have a tension between um, local people and the environment that the way in which local people and the way in which indigenous people live is necessarily mm-hmm. a sort of threat to the environment. And that we, you know, the, the sort of implicit message is that we Westerners with our, you know, sort of ecologic and natural sciences know better, right? Um, and that is, you know, these different pathways sort of give part of the picture on why, you know, why that is. Because when we actually put local people in charge, we're, you know, we're, we're going beyond these sort of, we're departing from these uh, sort of 
narratives that frankly have been quite uh, um, qu quite you know destructive for uh, yeah. conservation over time. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it must be a little bit difficult to um, evaluate metrics like um, participation from local people, because I, like, I keep thinking back to often to this case of the the Wet'suwet'en struggle in British Columbia, um, which we talked about in in a bit more detail last episode with uh, Sakshi, um, but um, the Wet'suwet'en are in a position where the company the like uh, fossil fuel companies uh, tc energy which is trying to push a gas a methane gas pipeline under the river that they uh, kind of base their whole culture around um that company is saying well we're working with local people we're we're doing this the right way we uh, have spoken and gotten the agreement from almost or i think from every single uh, band council uh, which are representative elected by these indigenous peoples now on the surface that seems like it could be qualified as working with local people but then if you dig a little bit deeper you see that those structures of band councils of like representatives were uh, stemmed from a history of canada trying to push uh, this like representative system onto the indigenous people forcing them to elect people um, even though they have a, a very clear hierarchical uh, system that they've been using for centuries, which, you know, like whatever our opinions are on that, uh, I think that, you know, we can fight for them to change that on another kind of level, but we have to respect the fact that they have that on, on this level. I think it's two different fights. But what I mean is that... Um, there's also been reports that these band councils are pressured by the companies that, you know, people have been told by their elders, just take any deal, the best deal you can get because you can't win against the white man's company. Like, so these band councils aren't as, um, it's not as simple as, oh yeah, they represent the local community. Um, so I'm wondering how do those kind of nuances fit into the metrics of, uh, of your study, for example? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm before getting into that, this, this very good book uh, by uh, Glenn Coulthard, uh, an indigenous scholar in Canada, is called The Red Skin, uh, White Mask, in, in reference to Franz Fanon's book, um, mm -hmm. where he's, he's basically building a critique of um, liberal forms of recognition, like you find them very strongly in Canada, where, you know, there's this, at least in, 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 in the discourse, this idea where you have to include minorities within uh, government organized processes, and, and Coulthard is going to show how um, that is going to completely transform uh, the way in which uh, indigenous people are, you know, experiencing the their their own land or their environment, the relation they have with the environment and whatnot. Um, so, for uh, mm -hmm. yeah, thank for you for that. People yes. interested in that, uh, it's I I can recommend that that book. Um, to answer your question, um, it's it's uh, the way we got around that is that we did a qualitative study. In that sense, it's not a meta-analysis. 
we're not we're not in the sort of uh, you know strict sense of the word we're not mm -hmm. doing statistics we're not you know doing zeros and one and one would be you know they're included and zero is they're not included uh, instead we yeah. go into the we go into the papers uh, and we can look at the details of how they're reported by uh, or documented by the authors of the studies we've included within our study um, mm -hmm. and we look at um, we include obviously papers that give us enough information about how the governance process is organized and then and then we have to make a judgment about whether it qualifies actually as 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 you know uh, a positive example of uh, local people being in charge mm -hmm. or whether it's a more sort of you know participation washing uh from that that you that are you know that are very very common in these types of setting as you as the example you have you have given shows um and and the ones that we kept as being examples of 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 of, of through participation if i can say it like that um is 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 the ones where we could be sure that there was um that local people were playing an active role um, in defining and in implementing the conservation project that the, the study was talking about. Um, and everything that wasn't actually um, an active participation in either defining the objectives or implementing the project was considered to be um, outside of that scope, was supposed to be a, a situation in which uh, local, part, local communities weren't participating or were participating to an extent where they didn't have enough influence on, uh, on the project. And we can do this because we have this qualitative approach and then we dive into the studies and to look at the actual details of uh, the study rather than, you know, try to simplify uh, uh, a whole bunch of, uh, of studies um, around, mm -hmm. uh, around participation and conservation. Yeah, um, I, I don't, sorry, Jamie, I know I've been speaking yeah, a lot, do, but do you have, uh, I don't know, if you, if you want the floor, I can leave it to you, I just have one more question though. Um, one of the, uh, one of the things that we spoke about on an earlier call that we had, uh, you and I, Brent, was the, there's a kind of like methodology in which, um, environmental justice is being studied in the global north based on cases of the global south um do you think that this opens up the field of environmental justice to uh, glaring issues and do you think that with this could potentially change as well with the numbers of like extractive uh, conflicts uh, environmental conflicts happening more and more in the global north uh, as we see like in, for example, Canada, which we've mentioned, or, but you know, throughout Europe as well, as, for example, Europe is realizing that a lot of its uh, rare earth minerals come from China, and so it wants its kind of geopolitical power back, in a sense. Um, do you, do you think, and also, as more and more researchers are highlighted uh, in Global South areas, do you think that this is, like, a bad thing, and do you think that this is changing? So, uh, your question about whether environmental justice analysis is going to become more yes. important? Well, whether there is something kind of insidious in a sense about this like global north studying the global south kind of. Um... Well, I, if, if, if we're talking about, you know, more studies looking into um, the overlap between 
social justice and environmental exploitation, then I think that's a good thing. We want more mm -hmm. studies on that, right? We want to, uh, especially outside of the U.S., because the U.S. has a tremendous amount of empirical evidence on that. Uh, we need evidence on that outside of the U.S. Um, but we need to do so um, with analytical frameworks and concepts that are adapted to 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 local particularities, right? We, we need to have frameworks that uh, make sense within a context, whether it's the global South or other places outside of the US. Um, one of the things where this is happening right now is in Europe, right? Environmental justice is becoming a thing in Europe, 40, 50 years after the US, but it's becoming a thing. The problem is um, that it's, 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 it's becoming a thing in a sense that is quite disconnected from the origins of, uh, uh, of environmental justice as um, a movement grounded within, uh, you know, the lived experience of racial minorities in the US, right? Um, and in the sense that, I mean, we can understand that the rate, like I was saying, the racial history in Europe is completely different from what we have in the US and therefore, uh, you know, people don't really know what to do with it, I guess. Um, the problem is, is, is of course, that uh, you're, you're going to completely ditch the sort of more radical and political aspects of the environmental justice framework by doing that, right? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you have within the, the, the sort of traditional environmental justice universe, studies, framework, whatever, um, a, a, a call now from, from, from environmental justice scholars to sort of break open the original framework, right? To, um, to, to, to make it, to, to open it to other uh, influences, right? To, uh, you know, for a long time, we had this discussion about distribution and recognition that we had here as well. Um, now there's calls to, you know, go beyond that and open it to uh, uh, more, more, more thoroughly to to, to critical race theory, to uh, intersectionality, to uh, ecofeminism, to decolonial theory, through all of these sort of influences that could potentially uh, to political ecology. We talked about political ecology mm -hmm. that could potentially add different dimension and help us. Uh, sort of transform the framework into something that works in other places, right? Mm -hmm. um, in in it's it's been fairly common, like I was saying, it's been fairly commonly used within the in the context of the global south. Uh, there's a whole uh, a team uh, in 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 Barcelona that uh, is very uh, strongly involved in that with uh, um, uh, with someone like. Um, uh, Juan Martinez Alier, the environmentalism of the poor, mm -hmm. um, that has you know successfully applied the framework or this idea at least uh, within the global south, and there's been lots of studies after his work uh, in 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 trying to make sense of of southern environmentalism through this idea of environmental justice, right? Um, this now needs to sort of happen within. Um, within other contexts, um, and in Europe, this is this is going to be a long struggle because you have the sort of weight of European social and political theory in a way that is uh, both an advantage to you know helping us expand the concepts, but at the same time is a very is a barrier to 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 you know 
opening up to uh, other ways of, of, of looking at the world, uh, basically. Um, and that's one of the, the things that I've been working on in, in, in the last years is trying to understand how we're, uh, how do we build a European sort of environmental justice? Jamie, yeah, Jamie, you're back. Oh, there yeah, hello. hello. <laughs> you, you were frozen for a sec. Oh, man, we're, we seem to have a lot of internet issues uh, today. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, can you say something, Jamie? Because I, I could hello, still hello. hear you very cut off. Okay, yeah. Lagging slightly, but should be okay. Um, so yeah, a European environmental justice um do you see that like entering the well, higher level of global governance or European governance? Because I, um, that's kind of something that I guess worries a lot of um, academics or, or just activists, researchers, is that while these ideas often prosper at the kind of citizen level, they don't often, re or at least they take a while sometimes to reach the uh the higher stratas of uh of our political leaders and and in the meantime while they're kind of like traveling up if if they even are sometimes um other ideas seem to kind of get a lot of pushing like for example there's been this um 30 by 30 um initiative of like 30 percent if i understood it correctly and remember it right it is 30 percent of the world's uh should be like conserved uh area or something by 2030 um and this like 30 by 30 super catchy like idea um for a lot of people who weren't very familiar with environmental justice or conservation justice sounds like a grand idea i mean amazing yeah let's push for it like 30 percent of the world conserved that that's awesome we're, we'll help to save so much of nature and then but then um and these ideas are like at the you know top tiers of governance but they're obviously flawed in the sense that they don't take into account at all uh these ideas in, of uh conservation and environmental justice so how do we deal with that kind of lag of the you know, honestly, more like the, the more nuanced ideas coming up the pipeline, let's say, or sometimes, like I said, not even coming up at all. I'd just like to piggyback onto that question. Um, do you, do you, would you think it would, fee it would be feasible that farmers um, at the ground level could sort of participate in that campaigning to actually get these um, this movement sort of officially recognized or like actually get policy going with it yeah uh, the 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 interesting thing about environmental justice in europe um is that it actually comes from uh, or it develops in a much more top-down approach than 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 the one in the us Right. Okay. Um, so 
so in the US, like I said, you have this sort of, you know, African-American community move, community left movement that, you know, is going to push this um, all the way to the White House, right? Uh, uh, the Biden administration has created uh, an environmental justice task force recently, and it's been, uh, it's been taken out by the Environmental Protection Agency, and uh, uh, Bill Clinton back in the days uh, had uh, an environmental justice bill signed and whatnot. So they were very, very effective in, in, um, in, in, you know, building up from the ground up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can talk about the effects and whether it led to more justice. That's a different story. But yeah. that's it was really, you know, sort of a bottom-up initiative. What we see in, the, in Europe is that we don't have something similar. We don't have an environmental justice movement in the U.S., uh, uh, in, in Europe. Um, even the word the concept environmental justice isn't really present in in, in public debate uh, on, on, on the environment in general, right? What is coming up, though, is climate justice very, very strongly, right? But even climate justice, uh, well, climate justice appears much later. Uh, it appears uh, in, 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 in the very late 90s, um, is, is sort of picked up within... Uh, the more sort of international uh, NGO world um, is, is, is initially at least more concerned about sort of north-south relations, you know, where uh, typically um, those countries are least responsible for climate change will be the most will be the most affected or the most quickly affected by climate change. Typically, you know, uh, the global south uh, is, is less responsible for climate change, but will, you know, face the consequences quicker, uh, uh, quicker and, 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 and harder than, than the global north, on top of having less means to adapt to climate change. Mm-hmm. So you have this very sort of international focus, global focus, whereas the US movement was much more of a local sort of micro level uh, focus, right? Um, and that then sort of trickled down in a way uh, to uh, the movement level in a way. Uh, you, you still can't talk of an environmental or climate justice movement as such in Europe, um, but that's the origin. Right, mm-hmm. uh, climate justice was included in in, in 2015. Was included in uh, the discussions on uh, the the Paris Agreement, for example, and that's basically when it exploded. That's uh, before that, you know, there was very little uh, talk outside of the more expert groups and academics and whatnot about climate justice. Um, and then in 2015, you have this Paris Agreement, and then a couple of years later, you have all these sort of youth-led movements. You had Greta Thunberg, you had you know the the Fridays for Future, you had Extinction Rebellion, that mm-hmm. all of a sudden talk about climate justice. Uh, unlike sort of traditional NGOs, these movements weren't necessarily putting uh, you know the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions first. Obviously, that's part of the story. Mm-hmm. But the call now is for climate justice. We want to have climate justice. Um, now, it's never really defined and it's not never really clear what it means, mm-hmm. um, but it's been picked up by these movements and, 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 you know, really, you know, brought, well, I'm not saying back to life because it, it didn't exist before, but uh, it's been used as a sort of master frame now. Um, up to a point where even, you know, the more traditional NGOs like Greenpeace and whatnot uh, also started talking about climate justice. Yeah. Um, so 
there's been a sort of dialectics between a, a sort of top-down approach and a, and a bottom-up approach in Europe on the concept of climate justice. There was sort of uh, um, interestingly, in a way, co-opted by the movements to say, "Okay, this is our, this is our concept, and we're going to <laughs> okay. actually use it. Um, we're not going to leave it to the sort of policy-led circles, UN-level type of approach. Uh, we're actually going to claim it for us." And it's the movements that sort of made it a popular term that you can now hear on 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 TV uh, mm -hmm. by journalists being used, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so, is there a danger of co-optation like you have seen with other terms, like sustainable development and and and, and yeah. uh, green something, you know, green economies and whatnot? Net zero. <laughs> um, there always is, obviously. Um, but I, I like to think that justice is a bit too radical to be co-opted in a way. It always has a sort of radical edge to it that never really uh, gets you know, uh, completely absorbed within within a sort of policy environment, or it could not be absorbed within a, a policy environment. Um, and and one of the the interesting stories about that in the U.S. was actually that when the Environmental Protection Agency started, you know, looking into these issues, they actually created an, a, a, a bureau or an or an office or I don't know what it was called um, on environmental equity. So they created, while the environmental justice movement was booming, basically, they created an office of environmental equity mm. um, because that was their way of trying to get a more political aspect of the, of the movement, uh, of, of trying eliminating that, right? Um, that didn't really work. And there was a lot of protest. And, in, and uh, eventually, they, 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 they changed it to, a, to an environmental justice office in the end. Um, but so it's 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 it it shows you how you know the, the term justice is is sort of attached to a whole set of principles yeah. and and a way of uh, and a form of activism in a way that in my view isn't isn't as easily co-opted as as would uh, uh, as would a, a term like sustainable development which which from the start was was you know obviously uh, more easily. Uh, uh, useful for you know policymakers and of all of all kinds. I'm wondering, sort of, how do you build uh, a sort of I don't know citizen -led, or something that largely involves citizens or farmers? How, what sort of qualities? It is a very open question, but I guess like how do you design it? Sort of culture of the movement to be against being co-opted or to be cautious against being assimilated by you know a different group that wants to warp it in a in an alternative direction well you know i'm i'm, I'm a scholar so i'm going to respond as a scholar and 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 what you know what my role in that can be but um it, i think is in part in Europe, it's about um, uh, building evidence on environmental inequalities that right now in Europe is completely patchy or inconsistent. There's no sort of, uh, there's no cross analytical, there's, there's no analytical frameworks that address the issue at a sort of cross 
cross-European scale, right? So we, mm -hmm. we have no means of, of, of reading the situation um, at a European level and actually building the, the, the evidence that movements are going to use to find to, to fight their battles, basically. If we look at the US and what happened in the US, it was, there was a sort of, uh, um, there was a sort of uh, uh, combination between the, the bottom, the, the bottom of movement, the grassroots movement around these things. Qualities by environmental justice colors. And the movement was using advances within um, academia, within from researchers to uh, reinforce their demands, uh, showing like, look, this is the actual evidence. Our communities are facing disproportionate exposure to you know a whole set of yeah. environmental risk, right? Um, and that doesn't happen currently in, in, in Europe because we don't have that evidence, right? Mm. Uh, basically, if you're an activist, you have nothing to go to. Uh, if if you're, you know, if if you want to lobby uh, or, or or if you wanna if you wanna uh, criticize a policy, or you don't have the data, the necessary data uh, to back up what you're saying, right? Um, and I think in the U.S., you know, part of that movement has been, you know, structured around building a lot of evidence and actually they have they have so much evidence on these things so that's the first thing that i want to work on and and that's in a way my way of supporting the movement but to answer your question more precisely i think when you do that inevitably it's inevitably going to show that certain communities certain parts of the population certain people are disproportionately exposed and the more you show that, the less it can be co-opted by policymakers, uh, because those who are faced with um, uh, these environmental consequences would only get, I mean, their case would only grow stronger in a way, right? That doesn't make the, 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 the movement stronger, obviously, but mm -hmm. the case they can build on becomes stronger and stronger, right? Um, yeah. And that's you know, it's an incomplete answer and there's no magic bullet and uh, I've no idea how you, you avoid being co-opted uh, uh, as a movement or, or, or even a concept or how we avoid concepts being co-opted. But my way would be, my answer would be that, continuously putting the justice of environmental justice back uh, where it belongs and, 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 you know, reminding everyone that environmental conservation or environmental governments or any form of policy in favor of the environment should be uh, should be about justice first and foremost yeah and um i think as we we start to wrap up slowly um i do want to give a, a shout out to uh well shout out of your book uh, environmental justice key issues which is um a really yeah a, a comprehensive textbook about all the kind of topics that we've talked about so far do you have it on yeah, yeah, yeah there you go <laughs> it's always on my desk <laughs> <laughs> and i have to say i love the cover art as well that's uh pretty fantastic it, it uh, took me a while to find that cover <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was quite a discussion with ratledge on what cover we're going to we're going to choose yeah i can imagine uh it's yeah it must be hard to just summarize 
environmental justice with one picture uh, that also makes it so people want to pick up the book but um, but yeah you guys have done a good job on on, on that um, would you would you say that the um, like what, what would you say makes this book unique because that's kind of one of the the I guess selling points of of the book uh, and it seems to be aimed at uh, kind of university students but also you know people who just have a general interest in it i mean after all it is a textbook um but also potentially people who just have a general interest in the topic um how is it different from other environmental justice books that have kind of been published well to answer that let me sort of run you through how you know, the book came to be because that's, you know, yeah, how I framed it. Um, so the initial idea of the book started when I was finishing my, my PhD and I was starting to teach, I was starting to teach with students and increasingly I had, you know, students come to me for papers and dissertations and whatnot, you know, coursework in general um, on environmental justice because that's what I was teaching. So I was basically opening doors for them, like, you know, uh, this is what I would like you to work on. And, and, and um, but I was always sort of struggling to give them something that one was accessible for them, considering that, you know, I work with, I teach only in English, but I work with non-native speakers, you know, my students are mostly French students. Uh, so, uh, so they needed to have something that was that was accessible, that, were, that was written for them. Um, and, and something that um, was going to give them uh, an, a fairly broad overview of what environmental justice studies was, um, but not in a, you know, um, 600 page book that costs mm -hmm. the 200 euros like the Routledge handbooks, for example, yeah. right? Um, and while I was looking around, I mean, there's lots of books on environmental justice, lots of them, right? Um, and, and, and they're all great. I mean, they're not all great, but many of them are, are, are great. Um, but, you know, when I was, you know, giving them to students, it was, it was way too much work for them to sort of dig through the whole literature. It was a, a proper barrier for them to, to sort of get going with this concept of environmental justice because they had to read up so much uh, before they could actually start applying it and working with the concept in the context of, 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 of a course paper, right? Yeah. Um, and so I was, I was looking for a textbook that didn't exist, right? I, there, there wasn't, I mean, there was one textbook, but there, it was, it was fairly old and it wasn't really, it was a reader. It wasn't a textbook. It was a reader uh, and it was already like 15 years old or something. Um, so I basically yeah. reached out to Routledge and, 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 you know, told them, you know, how about we build, the initial idea was a dictionary dictionary on environmental justice how about oh, we build a dictionary right. on environmental justice like we have the keywords and uh we have a sort of extended definition of keywords like a page per word or something uh on the main concepts of environmental justice and then Radlich said yeah uh, we don't know uh, that sort of things doesn't really sell well and whatnot but mm -hmm. you know we could you know turn this around and how about we do something uh, uh a more sort of it wasn't the textbook at first, but something more accessible uh, on environmental justice, which they didn't have in their in their collection. Yeah. Um, and this is how the idea of a textbook was was born. 
Um, and so what it, the difference with, 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 other, um, with other books is that, is, is it talks to students first, uh, obviously not just students. And I think the fact that it's, you know, that we paid a lot of attention to it being very accessible, makes it accessible for other people outside of academia, outside of, you know, students that would be interested in environmental justice, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it's really, you know, organized as a textbook that you would expect, you know, the, the sort of uh, questions at the start on, on what students can expect from the text. And then at the end, it has this sort of, well, not questions at the start, but bullet points, sort of, uh, you know, the highlights yeah. of the chapter. And then at the end, you have follow-up questions and you have tips on, you know, what to read next. Um, and you have uh, the way in which these chapters are organized is all, you know, sort of, a coherent whole of you know you can actually read through the different mm -hmm. chapters and, and and build up your knowledge of environmental justice and we added pictures to this um i mean the whole thing was thought as a tool for learning a tool for learning um so that's what i think makes it different and also it's very i mean it's cheap compared to the routledge handbooks yeah i was gonna say how did you manage to get them to uh to well that was a, that like was that. a point from the start but you know routledge was fairly open on that and it's it's in one of their series that is called key issues in environment and sustainability where the prices are kept fairly low uh mm -hmm. because it's it's the target audience is students, you know? Um, so I don't know how much it is, like 25 euros or something, uh, yeah. you can get the book. So, um, which which was important for me, right? I mean, I can't, you know, tell my students to read the book if it's 150 euros, right? Like these yeah. academics. Right? <laughs> um, so that's that's sort of how it came to be. And I think that this, to, to add to that, the, what what I wanted to do as well is, you know, as part of this thing that I work on, on trying to expand the idea of environmental justice, on trying to, you know, uh, diversify it. Um, I wanted that book to also open up to other uh, ways, less common ways of looking at environmental justice. So not just distribution, recognition, participation, but I also asked a colleague to, you know, develop chapter on decolonial theory. I asked uh, colleagues in Barcelona to work on a chapter on degrowth and environmental justice. Mm -hmm. um, I added a chapter on um, um, ecological justice, on, on sort of more than human forms of justice, because justice is always, uh, well, not always, but very often framed within a sort of very anthropocentric yeah. kind of approach, right? Um, um, there's a chapter on intersectionality. There's a chapter on uh, critical environmental justice approaches. So. I tried to, you know, break it open as, as much as I could as well, but still staying within this initial objective of making it very uh, understandable and making it very useful for students. Yeah, that's a fantastic project. Um, where can people find the book? Uh, you have a link on my website or just on the Routledge, right, yeah. Routledge website. Uh, you can just type environmental justice and it's one of the first thing that comes up. So yeah all right um i think if jamie do you have any other questions you'd like to ask 
No, I've asked all my questions. No? <laughs> Check the list. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, it has been an hour and a half, so I think we'll have to wrap it up here. Um, but we could definitely talk to you for much, much longer about this. Uh, Brendan Coolsat, thank you so much for thank coming you. on the show. Thank you for thank sharing you very much. your wisdom and your knowledge. And um, yeah, we definitely look forward to seeing more of your influence on the these fields that, uh, that we've talked about because it definitely seems like you have uh quite a critical mind about this um and it's, it's exciting to see so yeah thank you for your work thank you for your time thanks for having me and keep up the good work i mean i've been <laughs> going you. through your podcast list and it good it looks great i have to say it looks thank great you. So <laughs> good work. Well, if you have any suggestions for who we should uh, have on the show we're always uh we're always open to that i mean this year is going to be, I think we're going to be churning out episodes, like we said. And so, yeah, we're, uh, we're always on the lookout for quality speakers. And so, uh, oh, maybe even some of the colleagues that you worked on with uh, on the book, um, stuff like that. Definitely yeah. be interested. Yeah. And um, before we sign off, though, I just wanted to, because I know that a lot of uh, our kind of viewers are mostly academics and, and, and such. Um, there is a uh, conference that you are, I think, in part leading, and there was a saw there was like an open call uh, for papers or abstracts. Um, do you maybe want to shout that out, or um, also maybe you can shout out where people can find you as well? Oh no! <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh, there he is back. <laughs> oh this internet um i don't know if you heard what i what i said no no okay no (laughs) something about a conference yes 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 i was just saying that uh, a lot of our oops a lot of our uh viewers are in academia or like researchers as well and such um and i saw that there was a conference on global governance i think that you are part of uh or that you were at least sharing around is that something that you're like working in or was that just uh, sharing? I think what you're mentioning is the, the, the call for papers that I'm organizing with a colleague, uh, yes. Stasha Ryder, um, uh, on a, what we call a transatlantic dialogue on environmental justice. Yes. Uh, it's a panel we're organizing as part of a conference, the annual conference of the Earth System Governance Network, which is basically the biggest social science network in the context of environmental studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and their next conference is in Toronto in Canada next October. Um, and we oh. wanted to do something around this this tension that I talked about earlier in the show uh, between the need to adapt to local context um, and, 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 and the willingness to sort of, you know, acknowledge the, the origins of environmental justice. Mm-hmm. So we want to try and explore that tension uh, by having dialogues between people that work on, you know, both sides of the pond uh, on these issues. Well, it can yeah. be broader, of course, than, than, than these two sides, but um, that's that's what we want to do. So mm-hmm. if, if, if people here are interested and, you know, are hearing this and want to contribute, our deadline has just been extended with another two weeks. So nice, nice. feel free to send me an abstract. Also, October Toronto is <laughs> I'm literally in Toronto in October it's gonna you be are? the first yes yeah, uh, I'm going to potentially for my research but also to see uh one of my oldest friends uh and I've only ever been to Canada once before or something so it's gonna be great to go back 
Um, let's do so, a show in person then. Yeah, let's do oh. it. <laughs> Maybe I can just walk around the conference with a camera and a mic and just interview people. That would be fantastic. Um, but yeah, and where can people reach you, Brendan, as well, if they have any questions, if they want to see more of your stuff? Um, I guess out. the easiest is my website, brendan.coolzad.eu. Um, okay. Contact details are in there. Uh, all my publications are there. So I'm on Twitter. Um, yeah. Okay. All that's, right. That's, yeah. Cool. Thank you so much, Brendan. And uh, yeah, maybe see you in Toronto. <laughs> all right. Thank, Thank you, guys. You. All right. Take care. Have a good one. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.